If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13, we want to look at verses 44 to 46. Look at two parables, much as last week we looked at two parables because they are similar. So too, these two parables are very much related. If you don't have a Bible, then bring your Bible. You'll find Matthew 13, page 862 of your pew Bibles. If you do not have a Bible, take that home with you. Uh, we want to make sure you have a copy of God's Word. With that, if you will, stand with me out of reverence for God's Holy Word. The evangelist Matthew writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, beginning in verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for your love and your mercy. Thank you for allowing us to gather here even uh, with such poor weather. Thank you for those who have uh, come out in light of such poor weather. Uh, Lord, but may we, while we're here, uh, devour your word. Will you open our hearts that we would receive your word, our mind that we would understand it, our eyes that we would see your glory, our ears that we would hear and heed your word, and our mouths that we would speak the truth of the gospel, and our hands and our feet that we will go in obedience. May we treasure Christ more valuable than anything we may have or possess in this world. May I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen. Be seated. This is the summer of 2000. There was a commercial painter by the name of Rick. I can't pronounce his last name, so we'll just call him Rick. He was yard selling. No doubt his wife was with him. He was dragged to it. But nevertheless, he was out yard selling, and he, he found in a box a, uh, some old black and white photos of Yosemite National Park. And he kind of liked them. So he went and he bought the, the, the box of pictures for $40. Took them home, rummaged through them. And years later discovered that what he had found for $40 were original photographs long thought lost by the uh, well-known photographer Ansel Adams. And they are now worth over $200 million. Can you imagine at a yard sale to spend 40 only to discover it is worth far, far more money? What we have here is essentially that. In one case, a man isn't looking for treasure. It seems to find him. In another case, we have a man who is seeking treasure and he finds, but both realize what they have prior to the treasure isn't worth nearly as much as the treasure they discover. So too it is with the gospel. Jesus is worth far more than anything we may ever have, possess, or gain. Let's begin with the treasures in verse 44 to 46 quickly. Uh, the, we see here in verse 44 that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Now, there's a question that comes immediately to mind, maybe it comes to you, is what is this man doing digging in someone else's yard? Does, you, you, did that come to your mind when you see that? 
Every time I read this story, one commercial comes to mind. I hope you know what I'm referencing here. It's a uh, metal detector commercial, right? And you've got all these people, they find this and that. But there's one guy in that commercial. I just I got on YouTube and, and, and I watched it over and over again, just giggled every time. It was a guy, he's saying, look, my wife loves my new hobby. Not only have I lost some weight, but she loved this. And he finds an old gold ring, right? You know, and he smiles and, and, and you know, and, and it goes on for, for 15 payments of $4,000. You can have this or whatever it is, right? Uh, I'm sorry, $3,999.99 because if it's $4,000, you, you wouldn't pay for it. Um, but, uh, you know, th that's what I have in mind. Like, is this guy just roaming other people's properties, digging up their yard in order to find treasure? Well, that's probably not what Jesus is describing here. You remember that Palestine was always at war. Everybody's fighting each other. And, and for centuries, this was a place of many battles and violence. That meant securing one's valuables was of uh, the utmost importance. Uh, one could, could not place your valuables in a bank the way we have it now. You, you, you couldn't do that then. There was no uh, FDIC. There wasn't anything like that, right? Um, so, so banks didn't exist the way we understand it today. You, you could hide it in your home. The problem is, is you didn't have any secret compartments in your house. Most houses were, were at least on the main floor, one room. Everyone slept in that room, including in-laws and outlaws and kids and grandkids. Everyone just, just hopped right in there. And so uh, it would be easy pickings for, for robbers and be hard to find a, a, a good hiding spot. Thus, what one had to do was to bury their treasure in the field. They had to find a place and bury it somewhere on their property. And what we have here is treasure, whatever kind of treasure it is, it is buried in uh, the field. But the story seems to describe not that the man found the treasure, but almost as if the treasure found the man. If you ever uh, read the Lord of the Rings, uh, Tolkien's trilogy, uh, this is the, the language that Tolkien uses of the ring. It's not that Gollum or Smeagol or Bilbo or Frodo found the ring, but that it chose them. It, it, it found them. But nevertheless, what we see here is, is that because the man who who finds the treasure, doesn't own the field, he has to go buy the field. But I don't know about you, but I can't go and just buy 100 acres of property, right? Just, you know, go to the bank and say, hey, can I have this amount of money? I just go buy some land. I'll tell you why later. I just can't go do that. So what this guy has to do is he has to sell everything he has in order to do it. So this man is perhaps a renter or an employee or simply passing through, perhaps uh, the original owner had buried the treasure and died before he could tell anyone where it is. Regardless, he sees and discovers this treasure is more valuable than anything he possesses combined. So if he loses all of that, he will gain far more. The same is described in verses 45 to 46. In this parable, we have another man who finds another treasure, except this time he's actually looking for it. This man is a merchant, that is a wholesale dealer, who bought and sold merchandise. And uh, so now he would have an eBay page or a Facebook market page or something like that. And so he is looking for fine pearls. He's looking for a treasure. And he's looking and he's looking and he's looking and he just can't find it until finally he discovers it. Now, pearls at this time uh, were found in the Persian Gulf. Some were found in the Indian Ocean and thus were quite rare. And its rarity made them valuable. 
So if he can find it, that would be the one thing he needs. And finally, he hits the jackpot. He, he finds the, the, the pearl, the pearl of great value. And so as a merchant, he has a lot of possessions. He has a lot of things to sell. Some are more valuable than others. So in order to, to buy that pearl, he then has to sell everything he has gained and earned and was ready to sell. Now, he has to get rid of all of it first. So like the man in the field, he is more willing to lose everything in order to gain far more. And thus in gaining far more, he realizes he hadn't lost anything in the end. This one treasure, this one pearl is more valuable than everything he owned combined. So again, one stumbles upon the treasure, the other seeks and finds it. Both surrender everything, but they gain far more in the end. Well, that, that's, that's the parable in a nutshell, right? But the problem is, is like we saw last week, Jesus doesn't provide us a helpful and handy explanation. Remember, this has been a pattern in, in, in this chapter, these kingdom parables. So the first two parables, Jesus tells to a, to, to, to a crowd, and then privately he, he describes them to the disciples. He explains them. He does it with the parable of the soils, does a parable with, with um, the seeds. And, but the last four, he just tells and he walks away. I mean, that, that kind of ruins the point, doesn't it? You know, what's the point of a good sermon illustration if, if, if you don't know the point of the sermon illustration? And so we're stuck here. What, what do we do with this? Well, one of the things we need to note here is although I think the pattern is set right away, in, in losing everything, you gain far more. I think it's the general point, but I want you to look at verse 44. Look at it again. It says, yes, there, there was a man who, who went and dug up a field and he found it, all that sort of stuff. But notice how it ends. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Did you, did you notice that word joy? It sticks out now that you see it, right? It really sticks out. W what is happening here? In this moment, he realizes what he thought gave him joy, what gave him meaning, what gave him value, is nothing compared to this discovery, this treasure. Everything then is put into this one discovery. And so then what do we do with this passage? What do we do with this? A couple things. I think Jesus needs us to see a few things. First of all, Jesus wants us to see that Jesus is enough. In both parables, the men discovered all that they own and possess was nothing compared to this single treasure. Everything they owned was nothing. And Jesus says the kingdom of God is like the man who finds the treasure, who finds the pearls. Thus, I believe what they discover in parable form is Christ. It is the gospel. It is the kingdom. And Jesus' point then is nothing you possess, nothing you own, not your reputation or your self-value or the family you have is worth more than Jesus alone. And like these men, we must learn to surrender everything in order to gain far more in Christ. The problem is, is that most American evangelicals today suffer from what C.S. Lewis and Screwtape Letters described as Christianity and. Christianity and. So, he, so we could say, well, we need is Christianity and my lifestyle. 
Christianity and my self-esteem. Christianity and my wealth. Christianity and love. Christianity and my traditions. Christianity and self-improvement. Christianity and religion. Christianity and politics. Christianity and personal progress. Christianity and success. Christianity and my reputation. Christianity and my resume. Whatever it might be. It's not that we don't want Jesus. We're just concerned that Jesus won't be enough for me. And so if if I can sprinkle something else on top of of Jesus, add a few layers to that cake, then I'll be happy. Then I'll find contentment. Then I'll be able to rest. Then I'll have peace. Then it will be enough. So most Christians are guilty of trying to put one foot in the kingdom of God and another foot in the kingdom of man, unwilling to surrender everything and follow Christ. I'm increasingly becoming convinced that the American dream is the primary idol and the greatest idol haunting not just America in general, but the American church in particular. Think about how often we approach Jesus, not as worshipers, but as consumers. We ask ourselves, what what can Jesus do for me? Why should I come to Jesus? What is he going to do to me? That's the way a consumer thinks, right? Why should I buy this item? Because how is it going to make my life better? How's it going to make me happier, right? So too we approach Jesus much the same way. Will Jesus make me healthy? Will Jesus make me wealthy? Will Jesus make me happy? Will Jesus give me comfort in troubling times? Will Jesus give me new friends? Will Jesus give me meaning? What can I get from Jesus? But the gospel calls and tells us you're, you're approaching it the wrong way. The issue is not what I can get from Jesus, but then am I going to surrender and give everything to Jesus? It's not what am I going to gain from him. But what am I going to give to him? Because Jesus is enough. The eyes of the face see Christ in all of his glory, his honor, his praise and worthiness, and willingly leaves everything behind just to possess him. Thus, Jesus must become our aim above all else. He must become our goal. He must become our focus. He must become our love. He must become our praise. He must become all that we desire and all that we long for in our lives because Jesus is enough. If you this morning are living your entire life, you think, man, things are going well, and all of a sudden you can see Jesus in all of his essence, all of his glory, which would you choose? I believe that if you could see Jesus as he really is and understand what Jesus has really done for you, you would forsake it all so that you can just have Jesus. Far too many of us Christians, we want both because we think both will give us joy. Both will give us what it is that we long for. But not only do these parables show us that Jesus is enough, they also show us that Jesus is king. We've done this before, so I don't want to belabor the point. And, and if you want it in detail, you go over our daily devotions when we went over the Gospel of Matthew a few months ago. But the primary motif of the Gospel of Matthew is that Jesus is king, right? So, so you, you may remember uh, the, the genealogy. Remember we talked about this over Christmas. The, the central emphasis is that Jesus is the heir to the Davidic throne. The, the uh, nativity story with the wise men. What's the story there? Wise men come to crown the king of the Jews. They first come to the guy who has the title king of the Jews, Herod. They say, you ain't the king of the Jews. So they find Jesus as a toddler and they crown him king of the Jews. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And what does the false king of, of, of Israel do? He declares war, becomes Pharaoh, right? This is the pattern, right? So, so what we have here are the kingdom parables. You can't have the kingdom without a king. Now, that's simple enough state employees can understand, right? 
And so it makes sense that Jesus describes a kingdom as its king. And so, so the major motif of this book, of the entire Gospel of Matthew, is king. Which means that in order to enter the kingdom, we got to go the way of the king. And here's the problem with us Americans. We don't understand what it means to live in a, in a monarchy. In fact, we, we kind of fought a war over that, right? I mean, the founding fathers like, give us anything. Don't give us that, okay? <laughs> right? We'll take this about anything. We don't want a monarchy. But think about how it works. When a king demands, you obey. You don't protest. You don't tweet about it. You don't complain. You do it, right? But the king demands, we do. When a king obeys, we don't question it. The king expects loyalty, not unfaithfulness. And so when the king of kings, Jesus himself, calls on us to follow him, he asks us to forsake everything, surrender all other gods, and leave behind everything that stands between us and him to follow him. He's king. And what he demands, he will get. And we are expected to obey. But again, we, we approach faith as Americans. We approach faith as consumers. So, so we think, well, I'll take a little bit of this of Christianity, but I can leave the rest of that on the shelf. Or I like what Jesus says over here, but Jesus is my buddy. He's my co-pilot. He's my friend. So I like the good stuff that makes me feel all warm and fuzzy inside. That other stuff, you know, we, I'll come back to it later when, when it's convenient. But when we see Jesus is king, we see that Jesus demands far more than the average Christian in America is willing to give. Consider the language we get from Jesus just in this one gospel alone. In the very next chapter, chapter 8, Jesus says, A scribe comes up to Jesus and says to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Follow me. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. I'm skipping some there. Notice what happened. A guy says, Jesus, I'll do anything you want me to do. I'll go wherever you send me. But first, let me go bury my dad. Now, now that makes sense. You should bury your dad, right? I, I think that's a good thing. The implication of that passage is that the man's father isn't dead yet. In other words, he's saying, Jesus, I'll come follow you when I reach retirement. I'll come follow you whenever I'm financially secure and I get my father's inheritance. I'll come follow you, but first, let me do this. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Let the dead bury their dead. It'll take care of itself. Follow me. Leave it all behind. Follow me. And then we get that little note. The disciples got into a boat and followed Jesus. It's just a simple command. So hard for us to obey. Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. Jesus saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Notice. Matthew lost his job, lost his career, gave up everything to hang out with this carpenter from Nazareth. Matthew chapter 10, verse 38, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. By the way, that is repeated in chapter 16, verse 24, after Jesus lays the foundation of the church. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that the church will prevail in all things. Therefore, take up your cross and follow me. Now, that's significant, right? Because to take up your cross is an act of death, right? Crosses are cute around the neck, and they're good decorative items on the wall, perhaps. But a cross is an instrument of torture. It's an instrument of death. And Jesus says, see that instrument of torture, pick it up and follow me. And where is Jesus leading us? He's leading us to the cross. And yet, not even his own disciples followed him there. 
Chapter 19, verse 21, Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Striking language, isn't it, in a lot of these parables? What these men did for a pearl and for a buried treasure, Jesus asked for the rich young ruler to do the same thing. Jesus is king, and he demands we follow him. But Jesus is enough, and what we get in him is far more than anything we can leave behind. I think Dietrich Bonhoeffer, killed under Nazi Germany, said, When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. If you want true joy, if you want real contentment, if you want real lasting peace, then surrender everything that stands between you and Jesus. Leave everything behind. The irony of the gospel is that in dying, we truly live. In losing, we really gain. And humility is real exaltation. You see, your job is not better or more valuable than the kingdom. Your relationships are not better or more valuable than the kingdom. Your possessions are not better or more valuable than the kingdom. Your life is not better or more valuable than the kingdom. Jesus bids us to come die. So let us die for the glory of God. One other thing worth pointing out about this text. I want you to notice, because this is something I didn't, I didn't notice until, um, until several hours into studying it. Because it really just stuck out to me. These men find their worth and their value in what they discover. Now, there is a, that's good news and it's bad news. It's bad news if you think you have already found that treasure and you've put your worth and value in it. This is called idolatry. It could be our jobs. It could be our careers. It can be our reputations. It could be our resume. It could be our education. It could be our family. It could be our wealth. It could, could, could be intimacy. It could be anything, right? That we find our value in those things. I am what this allows me to be. I'm working my way up in the company. I'm gaining a lot of wealth. I got a lot of savings and investments. People know me. People respect me around here. People listen to me when, when I talk. Whatever that idol might be, the temptation is we put our worth and our value in them. What these men do is the merchant and the other man discover that there is something more valuable that if they place their identity in it, then what does it say there? Joy will come their way. The good news of the gospel is it reorients us to consider that all my value, all my worth, all my identity, when it is hidden in Christ, the most valuable thing we could ever possess, then we have peace. Then we have contentment. Then we have joy. Too many of us in our culture right now are searching for those things. And in so searching, we bypass Christ. These men discover, if you want value, you want worth, it's not in what you do. It is in Christ and what he has done for you. Jesus is enough. Jesus is king. Jesus is worthy. So I suspect you and I are somewhere in this text. Maybe... We do not value enough because we're too busy clinging to mere rags. Or maybe we still refuse to surrender all that stands between us and Jesus. Either way, we are somewhere in this text. Do you believe 
that Jesus is more precious than anything else in this world? Do you believe that Jesus is worthy? Then prove it. Prove it. No more pretending. No more half-righteousness. No more part-time Christianity. No more complacency. Prove it. Prove it. Let's be honest with each other. In a few months, many of us will be vaccinated. We'll have that herd immunity. And man, we'll finally be past this nightmare, right? How many people were going back and forth to church before the vaccine will return? We all know it's true. But I can, can I tell you why? Because they don't believe Jesus is worthy. Y'all know my favorite passage in all the Bible is Revelation chapter 5. There we, we get the, the uh, proverbial veil is pulled and, and John sees Jesus in all of his glory. But you remember the crisis of Revelation chapter 5. The question is, who is worthy to open the scroll? Who is worthy to do these things? Who is worthy to bring justice and truth and honor and glory? Who is worthy of all this? You remember, John looks around. He sees the 24 elders. He sees the four living creatures, whoever they might be. He sees all the angels. He sees the myriad of saints. He sees all of them. And he begins to weep. He said, there's no one worthy to do these things. And tears begin to flow down his face until he sees the lion who is the lamb. And then we see a series of, of, of ripple effect. First the 24 elders, then the four living creatures, then the angels and the saints and everyone. They fall down and they sing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. A single passage has been turned into a, multiple songs. And one of my favorite was originally penned by Andrew Peterson, simply called He is Worthy, where he writes, Do you feel that the world is broken? Do you feel the shadows deepen? But do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? Do you wish that you could see it all made new? Is all creation groaning? Is a new cre creation coming? Is the glory of the Lord to be the light within our midst? Is it good that we are reminded of this? Is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to break the seal and to open the scroll? The Lion of Judah who conquered the grave? He was David's root and the lamb who died to ransom the slave. Is he worthy? Is he worthy of all blessing and honor and glory? Is he worthy of this? He is. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? If not, why not? And if so, what must change right now? Now, let's pray.